Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Susan Kane. She's known for her best-selling book, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for having me, and I'll tell you in a minute why this is such an extra special treat for me to be here. I'm excited to hear. So I just read your book, which is fantastic and brings a totally new light to the way that we see introverts. And I just love the way that you framed it in terms of Western society's values and the conflict they create with the very core of who introverts are. The world really needed that book. So as a dabbling and somewhat aspiring writer trying to hone in on a subject, I wanted to start the conversation with understanding what brought you to writing and how you found this topic to write about. Oh, gosh. Okay. So yes, I always wanted to write a book. Since the time I was four, I had wanted to be a writer. um, And I took this whole crazy long detour into the world of corporate law for almost a decade before I actually um, became a writer in my early 30s. Um, And when I first started writing, I... I was writing all kinds of different stuff. Like I wrote um, a play, took this uh, playwriting workshop at Playwrights Horizons, and I wrote a memoir and sonnet form and all this different stuff that's all sitting in my hard drive. I never tried to publish any of it. And then a few uh, years into this whole writing project, um, I somehow got the idea for this book about introverts. And uh, when I first thought of it, I thought it was this highly idiosyncratic, unusual, quirky project that would perhaps sell a few copies. Um, At the time I first conceived of it, I didn't really know of the nerve that it was going to touch in people across the world because because we live in this culture that does stigmatize introversion people back then didn't really talk about the fact that they were introverts or extroverts. So I thought I was describing my own experience of the ways in which I felt like my own preference of how I wanted to spend my time did not gel with the messages society was telling me. Um, But I, you know, I didn't fully know how widespread that experience was until the book got out there. And there's, there's so many steps along the way. I want to go back to where you were, what you were doing before you embarked on this journey of quiet and, and I guess this whole revolution that's followed in the way that people talk about and view introverts. But you were a corporate lawyer. Yeah. And, and I, I, I read somewhere in one of your interviews that you said your years as a Wall Street lawyer felt like time spent in a foreign country. And... You spent seven years in that field, but you said you never felt comfortable. Tell me about why you you decided to become a lawyer or why you stuck with it for, for so long. Yeah, well, um, I actually really liked it. I mean, like when I say that it felt like time spent in a foreign country, you know, it felt like a foreign country that, that, I, liked. that, I, yeah, that <laughs> okay, I really sorry, liked. Yeah. And it was like a big kick to me that I was able to learn the language of this country and speak it semi-fluently and, um, you know, get to know its culture and be able to adapt to it. Um, yeah, so there was a lot. I, I, I really, I felt like the least likely corporate lawyer on earth, um, but I got a kick out of the fact that I could do it. And I, I really liked a lot of the colleagues in my law firm. So I think we often kind of stick with things longer than we probably should when we like the people around us. And it was kind of like that. So what brought me there in the first place, it was kind of a combination. Um, You know, it was partly the thing that brings many people to professions like that, which is you have to make a living and you're not quite sure how you're going to do it. And your parent, in my case, my father, maybe pulls you aside and says, you know, it was really great that you dreamed of being a writer, but you can't really support yourself that way and, you know, think about something else. So it was partly that. And and it, and then it was partly this thing of being an introvert in an extrovert world and um, always thinking I was supposed to be doing something that was kind of more alpha than my true nature was. Um, and also being just so much in the habit of doing things that weren't necessarily what I wanted to be doing. You know, like after a while, that can become a kind of way of life and you don't even notice the extent to which you're doing it. So, you know, all these forces kind of drew me into law. And once I was there, as I said, I actually kind of unexpectedly 
really liked it and liked the people around me. And I thought it was sort of intellectually interesting and this big sort of lark um, slash adventure for me. But, but you know, some years into it, I, I was definitely getting the feeling of like, my gosh, this is not lining up in some deep way. Um, and about seven years into it, um, I was on partnership track and this day came when uh, a senior partner in my firm came into my office and said that I wasn't going to be making partner. I still don't know whether not then or not ever, but all I know is that my response to that moment was, oh, can I take a leave of absence and can it start this afternoon? Wow. And, yeah. And I literally left like three hours later. Um, like I just sort of dropped everything and never went back and started writing 24 hours after that. And um, and a week after that, I signed myself up for this class at NYU in creative nonfiction writing. And I remember sitting in that class on the first day, and it was kind of like a sort of cinematic epiphany-like moment of I've come home, and this is where I'm supposed to be. And for the rest of my life, I'm organizing the whole rest of my life around this craft that's what I'm doing. And I'm so curious about these points of inflection because it, it seemed that you needed this catalyst to jump. And perhaps if that conversation had never happened, how would you have have known? Like, would it eventually enough time would have passed? Because I think there's so many things we're meant to do and we want to do, but we quiet that voice inside and say, oh, that's not practical or everyone wants to be a writer and this is practical and this is what I should be doing. I, I'm very curious about the people that leap and when they leap. And it sounds like as soon as that 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 moment happened and you thought you weren't going to make partner, you just, that was a moment where you just completely, everything was shaken up and you, you signed up for writing class and you found this sense of home and calm and this is me. I'm wondering, is there a way to get there on your own or kind of the external world needs to cooperate and in kind of nudging? I think you have to pay really close attention to the signs along the way. Because when I look back, there were so many others besides that that came earlier than that moment I just told you about. Um, like in my case, um, a, a few years into my legal career, when I was first starting to have these moments of like, this is just not really for me, um, I I came across at that time the, this book called Do What You Are, which helped you take this personality test and then use the results of the test to help you map out what the proper career might be for you. Um, and I took this test, and the list of careers that were associated with my nature were um, writer, psychologist, clergy person, social worker, you know, like a very distinct constellation of careers that did not at all resemble what I was actually doing. And I knew when I looked at that list that that was really me. It was so clear. Um, but even then, like— it's Giving like I yourself should... permission is so tough. Yeah, because by then, you know, I had all these years of education and experience invested in this other thing, the the legal career, and the idea of making that gigantic a jump, it just didn't really seem practical, I guess, um, in some way. Um, we yeah. make the mistake of trying to make life practical when it's not supposed to be. I know. My own personal quandaries as I, you know, from the age of five when I started gymnastics and went into skating at seven, it was really following what I loved. Yeah. There's nothing practi yeah. practical about trying to become an Olympic figure skater. Uh, that was just very much childish enthusiasm and joy driving me towards something that I loved. And, you know, I did that for 20 years. And, and towards the end of it, there was definitely a shift of I need to adjust myself for the judges, for expectations to be good enough, to be technical enough. And and then you you start to to do things that you need to do to win or to optimize. But it's the impetus of doing something for joy has faded, and then you're so used to needing to meet expectations that once I retired from skating and went into the real, the bigger world, it was very much, what am I going to be good at? And instead of 
really trying to figure out, like, what do I love? Yeah. And so yeah. I think a lot of people, like, you know, have this this duality of, like, this kind of, they want to be a screenwriter or what they, they really love, but the the practicalities that the world kind of projects. Um, I so see that in you. I mean, I, I told you, as soon as you reached out to me to do this podcast, um, and I'm, I'm in this crazy mode right now. I'm, like, writing a book and I'm creating a podcast, so I often don't have time. But I was like, oh, my gosh, it's Sasha Cohen. I have to go meet her um, because I I was just such a huge admirer of the way you skated. I was, like, a, you know, a very not top figure skater, but I love the sport with a huge passion. Um, and everything you just described in yourself, I saw in the way you skated. I hearing you talk about it gave me goosebumps in thinking about the way you skate because you skated with so much poetry. Like, it was so clear that you were in it for the beauty of it and just for trying to make something beautiful. And, like, you were amazing at the technical side, but it always felt to me like what really drove you was the pursuit of poetry and beauty. Um, Thank you. I always felt that, for me, it's like the music— manifested through my body and it was this expression yeah and yeah. it's funny because I've, I've always been very nervous at, at public speaking I've actually heard a lot of you know what you've said about it but for some reason you know people are like you can get in front of millions of people and skate and I was like well there's something different about moving your body than actually having to have words <laughs> come out uh-huh. and and I just felt very not that I wasn't nervous but when you know Swan Lake or whatever Malaguena came on and I could move it was just there was like another energy or life force that came through me through the music. And it was, you know, I always said that skating is right on that line of sport where if it was a little bit further to the left, it would be an art. And that's where ballet sits, where it's yeah, a performing yeah. art and not a sport. Right. And so that definitely developed, you know, one one side of me. But then coming into the, the real world, starting university at, at 26, it's it's very different when you haven't learned to develop the the social skills, ask yourself the questions that most people do and have the normal rites of passage as as a teenager or going to college at 18 and mm. trying to get away from your parents and all yeah, these things. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's been a lot of exploration later in in life. And I've written shorter op-eds and pieces for the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and in what it's like to lose an identity and to lose a way of life that that young athletes do when they retire and trying to make sense of it all and figure out who they are underneath that. And so I think I've become very sensitized to the critic and what's expected of me from the judges and from the media that I have found that I have been so afraid to try things because I don't want to fail. And so when I read a little bit more about your process and about the book Quiet— uh, I found out it took you seven years to write, mm-hmm. and during that process, after two years, you hand in a rough draft, and your editor says, no, yeah. this isn't good. Like, go back. Yeah. In my head, I think I would have internalized, well, I'm not meant to be a writer. This is clear. There goes two years, you know, and I would have really taken it personally, and I want to know, like, what went through your mind at that time and how you how you processed that. Yeah, I actually— this was your first book, yeah, it was. It, I, yes. Um, and I am, I, I have the same perfectionistic tendencies that you're describing, which is why, you know, even with my next book that I'm doing now and I'm more practiced at it, it's still taking me forever for those reasons. Um, but having said that, I actually jumped for joy practically when my editor said that because I can't remember if you said this part now, but she said no. And then she said, take as much time as you need to get it right. And to me, that was like, oh, thank God, because. Before that, I had had this deadline, and I knew that what I was handing in was no good, but I couldn't really get it to the point where I needed it to be within the confines of a normal book deadline. Um, So to me, the fact that she was giving me as much time as I needed to make it good, um, I I was just thrilled by that. And I had—but I think the answer to your question actually goes back farther than that, which is— when I first left law and started and, and discovered how much I just loved writing and felt meant to be there, um, I never expected to make any kind of profession out of it because I had heard for so many years that you couldn't actually support yourself that way. So I was like, okay, 
as long as I publish something by the time I'm 75, that will be the metric of success. Take the pressure off. Yeah, yeah, I totally took the pressure off. And, you know, all those years when I was writing the play and the memoir and all this stuff, you know, those were just like happy years sitting in a cafe um, with my laptop. And I was, I, I, I was doing freelance jobs on the side to support myself, but the writing was, was not my source of pressure or sort of like um, external self-definition. It was just what I was doing out of love. So I, I think I was able to bring some of that with me into the process of actually writing a book where there was a publisher behind it. That's um, such an important distinction, and I think I've historically become so subsumed by my identity, I was a figure skater and that was everything and that would define me, every success and every failure. And so to just try something just because you love it is it's still somewhat foreign. Yeah, um, yeah. And something that I, I have my, my own work to do. I, I get the reasons that it feels foreign to you, but I actually feel like your es- in your essence it's not foreign to you at all because I feel like that's what propelled you in figure skating. I need to find my five-year-old place. self again. Yeah. <laughs> she was very wise. Yeah, but she was with you the whole yeah. time. There's no way you would have skated like that if she weren't always with you. It's true. I've seen it make her make her voice a little bit louder. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit more to this idea of introverts and extroverts and that there's actually kind of a scientific difference in the minds of introverts and extroverts and how we respond uh, to stimulus. And and what struck me as very interesting was that that flow states seem to be easier for introverts to get into because it's kind of a solitary exercise of not dismissing the rest of the world and finding, channeling something really, really deep within. And so, you know, I'd love to talk about what you find super interesting in the differences in your research. And then, you know, maybe thinking about how that might apply to the athletes that we we watch on TV. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd say it's really certain kinds of flow states that come more easily to introverts and then probably other kinds of flow states come more easily to extroverts. You know, being at a dinner party and and creating amazing repartee and everybody telling their stories and like that, that might be a more extroverted version of flow. Um, That's just one example off the top of my head. Whereas introverts more easily get into the kind of flow where it's a more solitary state, whether that's, you know, shooting hoops by yourself because you're practicing ultimately later to play with your team Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, writing a book or whatever it happens to be. Those would be those states of flow tend to come more easily to introverts. And I I do think of flow, by the way, as like the great, I mean, people talk about it, but they don't talk about it as much as they should because it's one of the greatest joys of being alive, being in that state of flow, which like just to really define it, it's flow is really when you're completely engaged and absorbed in something and you're kind of surfing the narrow channel between boredom on the one hand and anxiety on the other. You're feeling neither of those things. You're just in whatever you're doing. And you're usually in it in such a way that you're you're trying to progress beyond where you were yesterday. Um, but you're not trying to progress so far that it's making you anxious. You're just like reaching for whatever's the logical and and achievable but not that easily next step. And the critic and, and goes delicious. away, It's right? delicious. It's, yeah, there is no critic. It's like the critic is— There's no self-awareness. You're completely— Yeah, it's like besides the point. In it. Yeah, yeah. Your your own self isn't there and your external critics aren't there. It's You're a just beautiful in it. place to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And find and, it more often. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually think it's possible to set up your life so that you're in a state of flow at least every day and hopefully multiple times a day. And, like, we, sh- we should really be thinking of that— um, consciously as the goal. And I've kind of felt it in two different ways. I think historically as an athlete training, you would have those moments where everything just felt right and every kind of, every kind of element in your body was just lined up perfectly and everything was just effervescent and easy. And then I've lately found it moments writing, you know, where you're just like, there's some kind of channel opens up and what you write, it just, it just, moments of, of genius coming through you, and then they, they leave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's been very beautiful and special to feel it both both in a physical sense and then kind of in an intellectual writing sense. Being in a flow state is definitely something I need to um, make time for, certainly not daily. I, I'm curious how you find a daily flow state. 
Oh, I mean, well, for me, I, I really do find it with writing, which is why it doesn't really bother me that it takes so long to write my books because— like it's, it's all a good time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it's all good time. What happens is every day I go to a cafe of some kind because that's where I really love to do it. And, you know, and I sit with my latte and I have a little bit of chocolate and my laptop. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, it's just like heaven for me. Like even when we're on family vacation, I, I'll like turn the whole schedule upside down to be able to get those two or three hours at least per day. And it's not because I'm so disciplined. It's because... You love it. I love it so much. Yeah. And I wish it could last longer, but it usually does. Like you, I mean, if you're you doing a few hours that, a day, you're doing pretty well. It dissipates after a while. <laughs> I know. And then, like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, it's two and a half hours in, and I feel it floating away, and it's like there's nothing you can do to reel it back. But it'll be back. But you know it'll be back the next day. So, yeah, so I think you have to figure out, like, what gets you personally into that state and do everything you can to orga- organize your life. Around it. Around it. That makes sense. Yeah. So I wanted to go into understanding, I think, your book, Quiet, and kind of this whole consciousness that that developed after it was just to really understand the difference between and the skill sets between introverts and extroverts and how we respond to our environments, right? Mm -hmm. That introverts are just hypersensitive to, to noise and to people and situations and so tend to... Um, optimally perform in different kinds of environments and extroverts and that yeah. we that we need to kind of embrace that and we've created this Western world for the extrovert and idolize the extrovert. Mm-hmm. And I guess since you've published, how have you seen that change and what are the bis- the biggest misconceptions that, that people have about introversion? Um, I mean, the biggest misconceptions that I see are that people assume that someone who's introverted is unfriendly or asocial or antisocial in some way. Um, And it's actually, like, if you look at the way psychologists map out personality dimensions, your tendency to be warm and loving is completely unrelated to whether or not you're an introvert or extrovert. So you could be a really warm introvert or not. And the same for extroverts. It's just that you want to express your warmth or your desire to connect in very different ways, whereas an extrovert might like, might, might prefer more to be meeting a lot of strangers, let's say, or being at a party, because that's more stimulating, mm-hmm. um, more physically stimulating. Um, an introvert will tend to want to lavish their social energy on fewer people at a time and often people who they know well. Um, you know, and if you think about the way that plays out for athletes, very often um, an introverted athlete would either enjoy individual sports or you do find um, introverts in team sports also, but they'll still tend to be like really good at the pieces of the puzzle where you're um, where you're getting into that flow state and drilling intensely, or you're kind of like losing yourself in the in the team. Like I'm thinking of soccer because both of my boys play soccer. There's that kind of beautiful game, um, beautiful game dynamic where. It's like one individual passing to the next, to the next, to the next. And there are ways for that to work for either type of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do think it's really important to understand which one you are, or if you're a coach, which ones are you coaching, so that you can make sure that the kind of day-to-day is set up in a way that works for each human on a team. And as an introvert, how how would you navigate like, what is the ideal way to navigate this Western world where we do value being very social and networking and public speaking and having this kind of gregarious identity? How mm. does an introvert navigate that? And and do you think social awareness has changed with so many of our tech leaders being more brilliant, introverted types of people? Yeah, I do think social awareness has changed tremendously Um since I wrote this book, um, I see it in so many different ways. There's the tech leaders who you mentioned. Um, a friend of mine is a professor at Harvard Business School and teaches a class in leadership. And she says that um, when she she would always start off the class by giving people a personality profile. And it used to be that no one in the class would admit to being an introvert. And nowadays, it's 50% of the class will raise their hand about being one, because a lot of the stigma is starting to reduce. Um, But having said that, there's still a really long way to go, like a really long way. 
Um, and I am seeing uh, companies and schools really adopting this as an important thing to wrap their arms around. Um, like I come in and speak to companies and work with companies all the time. It's a, it's become a kind of accepted part of a diversity and inclusion uh, mission to be looking at questions of, of temperamental diversity as well as other kinds. Um, and in terms of what to do as an introvert in this still very extroverted culture, um, the first thing really it's a, is a fundamental mind shift that you have to make with your own self of truly feeling permission to be who you are. Um, and I, I would tell you, like, of, of the thousands of letters that I have gotten in response to quiet, the word that I see most often in those letters is the word permission. It's like, oh, finally, I felt permission to just be myself. And you cannot overestimate how powerful that sense of permission is. It, it kind of changes everything in the way you negotiate the world because it means that you start giving yourself the breaks that you need. Um, you start organizing your life in a way that makes sense to you instead of in the way you think you're supposed to. Um, and then there's this other weird paradox that the more you feel a permission to be yourself, the more successful you become in the more extroverted activities. Because, like, if you think about it, I use the example of public speaking. So imagine the difference between an introverted public speaker who thinks they're supposed to be like this really out there showman of a speaker versus one who says, oh, okay, I have figured out what my strengths are. Um, I think I'm good, let's say, at figuring out interesting ideas that nobody's thought of before. And they get on stage and talk about those ideas in their own way. They're going to be a thousand times more compelling, more successful, and more at home. And the what really made all that possible was the giving of self-permission. Permission is such a big theme because not yeah. like permission to pursue the kind of impractical dream, like permission to be yourself, permission to say no. It's true. And it's funny because I think in our culture and in American society, we're, we're very uh, brash and we're very independent. We value the individual. You know, we're, we're generally not conformist. And so it's, it would seem strange that we need permission to be to be different right and and the american dream is is usually not always practical you know it's the person that goes to hollywood and makes it as a big yeah. uh, you know, movie star or writer um or you know tech entrepreneur it's like it's the not practical things that we kind of put on a pedestal as the american dream so i i think that's such a funny balance and something to think about in society today, today is the permission that we don't allow ourselves to have and that we're somehow still trying to conform in a pretty individualistic society, but that ultimately that, that that's a handicap and we can't really thrive and become who we are if we're all trying to fit this, this mold. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you say because we do have this idea of the individual who, you know, is the nonconformist and the iconoclast and all that. But there's a way in which that's kind of a myth because it's really, what we're really celebrating is the person who does that in a very specific way. I mean, it's a very kind of swashbuckling type of model of what that iconoclast is supposed to be like. We're not so much about, you know, like, <laughs> if you think of like the 19th century European ideal of like, the dreamy romantic thinking about going going off and thinking their own private thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's not really what America celebrates at all, even though it's really just as independent-minded. It's of being in and of the world and connected. Yeah, be, yeah. It's the, the, quote, man of action. That's really what we celebrate. Which can be tiring now. Is I think everyone has a speakerphone to send a message everywhere, and it's just a lot of static and noise. So it's kind of, I'm finding that duality of, trying to figure out how much are you partaking in Twitter feeds and keeping up with news and choosing what to read and who to engage with. To the point it's just exhausting and you're just kind of chasing your tail, but at the end of the month, you're like, what did I even do this month? Except yeah, network yeah. with everyone and keep up with the news and and kind of, it's like the deep work versus like the surface connecting. Yeah, and I really do believe, I, I, I think Cal Newport, um, who talks about deep work, ha has talked about um, 
the fact that the ability even to do that work is really what's going to be at is going to have scarcity value in the future because so few people are able to do it increasingly, you know, because we're all living in the shallows and and our kids in school aren't even taught to sit down by themselves and do deep work, you know, everything. To be bored, to have the opportunity to be bored. Yeah, or to get into that float state that we were talking about through solitary means. Like, kids aren't really trained that way in school anymore, the way they were, like, when I was growing up, at least, where we had a lot of projects where you'd kind of sit down by yourself and get it done. But nowadays, it's much more, you know, fast-paced, and everything's done in groups, and and we're just losing that skill. Well, hopefully there'll be a sitting in a transition back soon. I think Jillum swings, and yeah, I think we're at this yeah. swing with, like, social media and so much over-connection that people are just getting burnt out. So this kind of, like, rise in meditation as this escape and just ways to find the peace and the space and valuing fi- family yeah, time, I think, yeah. is, I think is really so. important. I, I actually think that part of the reason that um, technology had the rise that it did is because it seemed at the beginning to offer people a respite from the hyper-extroverted 24-7 culture because it was kind of like, look, you can now stay home and interact with people from behind a screen. You don't have to be on 24-7. So at first it seemed like the great respite um, for the introvert and everybody. And it can be this great means of connection. Yeah, yeah. And, And it can be all those things. But I, but nowadays, it's also become that thing that you just described of like, oh, my gosh, how many followers do I have? And am I keeping up? And what is my self-presentation? And all these excesses of an extroverted culture now kind of on steroids in the online form. So now we have to find a new way. And I think we're already starting to see that, to see yeah. a little bit of distance and space. So I, there was one comment that you— that you made uh, about quiet when you were writing it, and that you you said you were fueled by this this passion that you imagined might have fueled the feminine mystique, which was a famous 1963 book on feminism, where you can you compare introverts today to women at that time mm-hmm. that they are treated like second class citizens, that they have a gigantic amount of untapped talent, and and how did you kind of make that connection, and and how are we finding ways to really tap into collective of introverts, which is maybe, what, 50% of, of mm-hmm. society? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I made the connection just partly through my own history because I've always been really interested in feminism. And um, and when I used to think, like, during my years at the law firm, when I thought about questions of personal identity and how they um, kind of showed up in a law firm context, the only language I really knew back then or that anyone was really talking about then. Like we had the language of gender and we had the language of, of race and so and a few other categories. Um, and I, st- But I started to think, this is not really explaining everything. Like I would go to these, you know, like a boardroom full of people doing a negotiation and there were all these different behaviors showing up. And I, I was thinking, okay, gender's not explaining all these differences that I'm seeing. And I realized that this big missing piece was the question of how introverted or extroverted people were. So from the get-go, I was kind of seeing, I, I, I was thinking about these ideas in the context of what I had already learned by thinking deeply about feminism. Um, but now I would say with introverts and extroverts, yeah, we're kind of like where feminism was, let's say, I don't know, in the late 70s or the 80s, which is to say we've made a lot of progress and we still have a really long way to go. And what do we—is it the way that we set up our workplaces? Is it that we value someone that speaks out? What is it that we're that we're missing, that we're not giving introverts really a chance to kind of add full value of, of who they are and what they can contribute yeah, I mean, it's everything. So first of all, it's still just the general mindset where, you know, you still see um, job advertisements that will explicitly call for extroverted candidates. And, you know, there probably are some small percentage of jobs that really should be uh, taken by extroverts, but not really that many, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's everything, you know, like in the way we design our schools where now so much is done in group work and there's such an expectation that kids are a successful student if they are the ones who are participating super aggressively in class. Um, yeah, in the workplace, you know, I, I hear from people all the time who feel that 
they're making all kinds of contributions that are undervalued because they're not as um, effective at or prone to self-promoting. Um, they don't call attention to themselves quite as much or as easily, whether for cultural reasons or personality reasons. And so the contributions themselves get undervalued. And then we also know that introverts um, tend to be passed over for leadership positions at work, even though, like that's one set of studies. Then there's this other set of studies that shows that introverted leaders actually deliver outcomes that are as good as or better than extroverts. So the two sets of data don't really match up in terms of the ideal outcome for everybody. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for anyone that hasn't read it, I found your book, I found Quiet to be really interesting, and you you spend so much time in the research and just the kind of the scientific differences and kind of the biases that we're not even aware of and how they're very, you know, end up being counterproductive in, mm-hmm. in the workplace and in family relationships and friendships. Uh, so I I learned a lot, and I think I've got I've got both tendencies. But you really realize like when you're at a party and you're going to the the corner or the hallway or the bathroom to take breaks that yeah, that you yeah. know where you really recharge. Where I really recharge personally is that time away from people, and I like doses, like you know, like little yeah, I, like, yeah. You know, It's like it's like salt. Like the right dose is very important. You know, you, it, without it, life is bland. Yes, and yeah. with too much of it, it's just it's it's just too much. Yeah, exactly. And being able to figure out what are the right doses for you personally, and then consciously setting up your days so that you're in your sweet spot as much as you can be is really transformative. Exactly. So I want to move now and ask you about your your current projects. I know that, you know, one thing I read about was this Next Big Idea Club that you started with Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink focusing on books about psychology, business, happiness. And, and I know that you're starting a podcast and you're writing a book. And I'm yeah, so curious yeah. what that that book is about. So I guess in any particular order, what you're what you're really excited about, that's this next phase for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, really all of those things. So yeah, the Next Big Idea Club has been this really cool project that um, we've been doing where we, um, we select each quarter two new uh, books that we think people would love to read and, and the people who are signed up for the book club get those um, books in the mail and they also get access to all kinds of content like we do live interviews with the authors and like that. And then um, we've been donating all the proceeds to children's literacy programs. So that's been really a great thing. Yeah, and I'm writing a book right now and I'm always terrible at talking about current book projects, but in Quiet I was talking about the cultural bias that we have against introverts. Um, I'm looking here at the bias that we have against a kind of bittersweet slash melancholic temperament and about the ways in which that temperament is connected to spiritual longing and to artistic expression and all kinds of other aspects of I'm um, so interested. Humanity. This is already so applicable to me. <laughs> I had a feeling. Yeah, like the artist, you know, like the tortured artist is all of that kind of the whimsy and you just feel things more deeply and, you know, everyone's like, be more of an optimist, be more positive. Yeah. And yeah. they're definitely, you know, you, you learn to perform for people and what you need to put on and, and turn off. But I think that's such a beautiful to explore, right? Because I think that's like the genesis of so many of like our greatest novels and like Tolstoy and like this, this like this bittersweet and is isn't just all sugar. And yeah, it's, it's kind of the yeah. bittersweet, the highs and lows and, the different dispositions within it. So. Yeah, and there's some kind of like incredibly piercing beauty in the bittersweet that like you just can't even believe it sometimes. That's why people like sad songs. <laughs> I, exactly, and it's funny because this whole book started out, the, the whole reason I'm writing it is because my entire life I have loved minor key music and there's something about it like when I hear sad music like that. I mean, I like upbeat music too, but when I hear sad music, um, I feel... Happy. It's not happy though. Exactly. I feel you like the sense intensely. of exaltation. I feel like I feel like uplifted into some other realm. And I've, for a long time, had not been able to understand why something that was on its face sad was mm-hmm. actually connected with this sense of uplift and exaltation. And so that's oh, kind I'm of what so I'm exploring. To read this, it's going to be really exciting. 
I want to shift to a series of, of closing questions now. Sure. And I guess starting with success, you know, I think that's a topic that I've struggled a lot with to, to redefine uh, living in a society where success is very important and a certain version of it. Yeah. And so, so I like to ask you what, what success is for you and has it changed over the course of your life? Um, I mean, this sounds so hokey, I'm sure, but truly success is like getting to spend as many days as possible doing work that I love to do and being with people who I love. And like, I know that sounds hopelessly hokey, but, um, but I, I think a lot actually about the advice that Steve Jobs gave um, at a commencement speech at Stanford that he gave some years ago, where he said something like um, that if he would wake up too many days in a row knowing that he had to spend his days doing something he didn't want to be doing, that he knew that it was time to course correct, time to make a change. And I've been in that place several times throughout my life, and every time I made the change I needed, it was really transformative. So, yeah. I think, I, I mean, think that that's certainly resonates with me, and I'm, I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people, and that certainly taps back into permission, right? Yes. It's giving yourself yeah, permission yeah, that yeah. to admit that this isn't what's right for you. Yeah. And yeah. I'm totally with you on that definition of success. Yeah. And I, I just want to add one thing because I, you know, we talked also about this um, impulse to practicality that you and I both share. And and so I'm not meaning to say like, oh, the answer is, you know, just follow your dreams and throw practicality out the window. I, I actually think you need to figure out a way to kind of like establish a baseline level of practicality. Like you know that so we have to you're gonna be able pay to pay rent, the rent and all those things. Buy food. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that American myth that we were talking about, you know, of the the swashbuckling person who just goes off and does what they want. Um, I feel like that myth actually leads people astray because it makes you think that the only way to live a super creative or adventurous life is to be completely impractical. Burn all the bridges and just yeah, go forward. Just, yeah, and follow your thing. <laughs> and I, I think it makes so much more sense to like know that you can pay the rent first, and then you have the emotional freedom to do what you really want to do. Yeah, I think that makes for, like, it's Hollywood, right? Just like yeah. much more dramatic. Yeah. You know, like, when am I going to be brave enough to burn all the bridges and go forward? But, but I think you're right that there may be the few and the far between people that everything up and forge this new path, but that there is room for balance and that for most people, that's probably the best way to go so that what you love to do, you can kind of carve out space and time for that. And it will never bitter on you that you, you know, if you've written a screenplay or whatever this is that you're doing and you're just, it needs to work and it needs to work now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's yeah, really Those important. are terrible conditions for creativity yeah. for most people. I mean, unless you're like an extreme risk taker by nature, which yeah. is not most people. Yeah. Not me. Not me either. Uh, so from success to failure, I think, you know, at the time, no one likes it. It's, you know, I, I take failure so personally. And uh, I, but I know that when you get far enough away from it, it ultimately teaches you something. And it's, yeah. it's there for a reason. And I was wondering if there was a certain failure that that you can recall that you found the most disheartening, but perhaps might have been the most instrumental in your life thus far. Um. I mean, probably the one that comes most to mind is the one that I told you about at the beginning when I first didn't make partner. And, and I told you I left the firm like three hours later. Um, Best but, failure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the time it was like embarrassing. And, uh, you know, the guy came into my office and, and um, told me this and I cried right in front of him. And that was really embarrassing. And, you know, just the whole thing was like, oh, I've spent the whole last six or seven years of my life invested in project A and that was all for nothing. Um but yeah, I mean thank God that I failed at that. And you needed the distance, you need the hindsight and then it's it's something that you're so thankful for because it's this course correct. So yeah. That's a very yeah. good failure. Moving to identity and purpose. This has been such a huge theme for me personally. Uh, leaving, uh, you know, two decades as a figure skater, as an Olympian, as this whole way of life and how it defined me. And I was homeschooled since uh, the seventh grade. And, and wow. so trying to figure out who I was when I wasn't skating, competing, touring. Yeah, I can imagine. I had no idea. I had no idea what else my, I was interested in. 
And and so I think I've really spent the last 10 years trying to cobble together what that is. Like mm-hmm. who who am I not the figure skater? And right, what gives right. me purpose? And, you know, 10 years ago, it was like, I'm an, I'm an ice skater. I'm competitive and I need to win. I mm-hmm. need to prove that I'm enough. And these would be the, co- the core tenets. Yeah. And, and I wonder— you know that that's definitely it's evolved for me and it's shifted drastically. But I'm I'm so curious about identity and purpose, and so I I always ask everyone so mm-hmm. that I would love to hear your your take on it. And identity and purpose. Yeah. Or- how do you see your identity? Like for some people, it could be like I'm a mother or I'm a writer or you know this is who I am in the world. And purpose, kind of like why you get up every day. Is it to spend time with loved ones? That to spread a message? Like what is it that that really gets you motivated. Yeah. I mean, I guess I do feel first of like first and foremost, you know, I, I spend a ton of time um with my family. And so that's kind of like the the first threshold thing. Like all the work I, I actually I love working. Like I love, love, love working. But I'm in this stage of life where I really only work between during the hours my kids are in school. So it's actually an incredibly smushed up work day. Um because it's usually done by three or four um, but yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, I've had this feeling of wanting to be a writer since I was four and I just, I love like thinking about life. And so for me, like getting to do work where I feel like I can think a lot about life and communicate it with people, um, and I was always a huge reader as a kid, and for me, the moment when you felt like you had a a very deep communication between the writer and the reader, even if the writer was no longer alive, those were incredibly profound moments. So I feel like I get to have those moments quite often, either in writing a book or communicating with readers on social media, some of whom I've gotten to know quite well, just like through my Facebook page or my LinkedIn page. And that's a—I mean— I love that. It's like it has value in it beyond what it sounds like and it's intrinsic. There's there's something to me very elevating about it. I think that so. makes total sense because ultimately we're social creatures and we want to find something meaningful and share that with someone else in kind yeah. of whatever forum or format that we that we do now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's hokey, but I'm gonna come back to why I told you that I have admired you as a skater for so long. Like just pursuing beauty for its own sake. I don't know why it matters so much, but it matters like more than almost anything. And so I saw it in you as a person and as a skater. And that's the way I like to try to live at least. Thank you. I think there's a lot that I need to tap back into and and re-remember. I think your innocence and naivete as a child yeah. really steers you on a much more pure path than when we've become socially conditioned to what's expected of us. And and tapping back into that that persona where you do what you do for the joy of it and the purity yeah. and the love of the grace. I remember the first time I got on the ice and feeling the blades and the ice beneath me, feeling like I was flying, and it was just a feeling, like a flow state that yeah, yeah. I just was immediately, immediately hooked. It's funny that you say that because, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by career changes and career identity in the same way that you are because I, I also went through a kind of radical transition like you. Um and so I, I often try to talk with people about their career issues when they feel they're not in the right place. And what I always say to people is what you just said, which is, you know, think of what you love to do or what you wanted to do when you were a kid. And maybe you wanted to be a fireman, and it doesn't mean you're supposed to be a fireman, but like, there, why did you want it. to be one? There was something in it that's intrinsic to you that you need to follow. The message is we were thinking much more clearly when we were five. Yeah. <laughs> we are now. <laughs> Well, that brings me to my last question, and it's something I ask all my guests, and it's what is your Olympic moment? And this can be any kind of monumental time in your life, an inflection point, this kind of moment with gravitas that, you know, you think you'll, at the end of your life, will really be prominent and you'll always remember. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, one of them would definitely be when I gave my first TED Talk on introverts and extroverts. And um, 
you know, these days I publicly speak all the time and it's not a big deal, but if you had asked me back then whether that could ever be so, I would have said it was impossible because I was the most nervous public speaker you could ever imagine. And so the idea that I was going to be giving a TED Talk of all things, you know, to this very, um, what seemed to me then, a scary audience and um, and about this project that mattered so much to me, it yeah, it was it was a very intense thing. And it's funny because actually before I came here, um I I looked up on YouTube one of your, your your Olympic short program, I think it was, and I saw the look on your face as you were getting ready to go out onto the ice. And I, I was thinking as I watched it, I was like, Oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Ted Talk face. Yeah. From everything I hear about people who have given <laughs> TED Talks, it's just the most nerve-wracking kind of preparation and keeping it to the exact right amount of time, no note cards, and public yeah. speaking is already nerve-wracking in general, especially for me, that I have so much respect. Uh, it's, it's funny that you say that because it is a funny thing. Like, you know, backstage at TED, you'll be chatting with other fellow speakers, and many of them are incredibly practiced speakers who don't normally get nervous before they go on stage, but there's something about that particular okay. red circle stage moment that freaks people out. So maybe if you're you <laughs> nervous about speaking in general and about TED, somehow they like just balance each other out and you're fine. <laughs> that doesn't really happen to anyone. <laughs> I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't even really remember it, honestly. It was like, it was such an intense experience that my brain canceled it out afterwards. Well, thankfully, it's, it will live forever on YouTube. And for anyone that hasn't see, seen it, you should Google um, Susan Kane TED Talk. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I know our audience will love getting to hear your perspective. And I think these themes of permission and, you know, the work that you're doing is, it, it means a lot to people. Oh, well, I hope so. Thank you so much. And um, if you're interested in all these kinds of topics and more, then I would just say, please to sign up for my newsletter because I, I will keep you up to date on everything. Yes. And what is, uh, where do people find your newsletter? Um, well, for right now, I'm changing websites, but anyway, just go to Quiet Revolution, which is quietrev.com, okay. quietrev.com, and there will be... Um, a prompt right there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.